Hello, and thanks so much for tuning into the Digging Deeper podcast with Pastor Ken Vance. This podcast is designed to go a step beyond the Sunday teaching with a more in-depth look at the topic Pastor Ken shared with us this past weekend. So whether you're on your way home from work or pouring yourself a fresh cup of coffee, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. And now, here's Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken Vance. Hey, everybody. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. I'm Pastor Ken, the senior pastor at Vertical Church, and this is our weekly podcast, Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken. These podcasts are designed to go beyond Sunday morning, to keep the conversation going. They're for all of those who want to dig deeper into the truths of God's Word, who want to know at a more comprehensive level. And so I'm excited to take the time to share with you. These types of things are, are just near and dear to my heart. And so I'm thankful that you take the time to, to, to tune in and to listen. And so this month, I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to my heart, something I've been studying about for a lot of years and I've never really had the opportunity to share before. Um, it's not something I've actually heard many people talk about, but I'm excited to talk about it because I believe it's significant to us as New Testament believers. And so what we're going to be talking about, I'm calling the promise of the presence. And most people will fam- are familiar and understand the importance of the presence of God. But these discussions are really about the restoration of the tabernacle of David and the significance that it has with respect to the presence of God. And that's why I'm excited to share it with us because when people talk about the tabernacle of David, many are just ignorant. It's, it, they're clueless and they think somehow you're mistaken. You're talking about the, the tabernacle of Moses because in the Old Testament, there are two structures that gain a lot of significance. They're talked about extensively. And one is the tabernacle of Moses and the other is the temple of Solomon. So when you bring up the idea of the tabernacle of David, it wasn't a significant part of scripture. It was a transitional period. It was a time frame that it was there. It is found in scripture. But again, most people are more familiar with the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. But this is about the presence of God. And really what it is about, these discussions, is the heart of true worship. For you and I to understand and appreciate all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf, what Jesus gave us, especially as what the Old Testament would call a Gentile believer, people who are not from the lineage of Israel, what Jesus gave us access to, how Jesus brought us to God. He made us a royal priesthood. He washed us in his own blood and gave us access to the presence of Almighty God. And that's so significant because God wants us to know him intimately. That was the heartbeat of God. Since the fall of man, God has wanted man to know him intimately. But we know the story of Scripture is that man was separated from God because of our sins. And that's why what Jesus accomplished on our behalf is so significant because he gave all humankind the ability to approach 
God and know God intimately because of what he did on our behalf. In fact, Jesus said eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But you and I will truly never know God intimately until we learn to worship him correctly. When we learn to worship him as God intended, as God instructed for us to do, because we become like what we worship, and worship is near and dear to the heart of God. So as we begin these discussions, let's talk about the two buildings that most people are more familiar with, first being the Tabernacle of Moses. Historically, when Moses led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the, on the mount and God gave him the articles of the covenant that he was entering into with the nation of Israel, what we refer to as the Ten Commandments that Moses expounded on. And there came 613 commandments, but originally the Decalogue is what people are familiar with. And God had written the articles of that covenant with his own finger on tablets of stone, which Moses brought down to the people. But when Moses went back up onto the mountain, God gave him the instructions to build a structure, a tabernacle. Tabernacle meaning it was a tent. It was portable. It could go with the nation of Israel all the way through their journeys into the wilderness and eventually on into the promised land, the land that God was giving to Israel as their inheritance. But the structure, the tabernacle of Moses was designed to hold the presence of God. That's so important. God wanted to dwell among his people. And so the instructions that God gave Moses, he gave them he, a, a, a window. A, a, he saw into heaven and he was to build a replica of what he had seen. And God gave skill and wisdom to artisan contractors to build all that God had shown to Moses. There was furniture in it. In fact, when the tabernacle was set up, there was inside the inner court, there was a a brazen altar which daily sacrifices were made for the sins of the people and for their uh, uh, responsibilities to the covenant. There were daily sacrifices made there. Then there was a brass lavern. It was really a wash basin that the priests would wash up in before they were to enter into the what was called the holy place, a sanctuary where there had three articles of furniture in there a golden lampstand, and there was a golden table which held the bread of presence, and there was also a golden altar which they were to burn, the priests were to burn incense on. But then there was an inner sanctum in that place, a place called the Holy of Holies, and it was separated from the holy place by a thick curtain that was four inches thick. And behind that curtain, resided the most sacred of all of the furniture pieces, which was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that held the articles of the covenant, the two tablets of stone that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. And then the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat. It was pure gold and it had two cherubim with wings outstretched over it on the top. And what was so fascinating when you read the Old Testament was that the very presence of God, what the Jewish community would call the Shekinah glory, the glory 
represents the very essence of who God is, the weightiness of who God's character and personage is. And so God's presence resided between those two cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. But the important part was that it was separated from the people. The only one who could go into that inner Holy of Holies was the high priest, and that was only once a year. But when the tabernacle of Moses was completed, and when it was dedicated to God, something fascinating happened. It's how the book of Exodus ends. The presence of God filled that tabernacle, whereby neither the priesthood nor even Moses could enter into that place because of the presence of the Lord. And that's why the very next book in the Torah is the book of Leviticus, which talks about the holiness, what, what it would require for human beings to enter into the presence of God. And so you had the sacrificial system, you had the priesthood, and you had all of the responsibilities of the Jewish nation to be able to enter into the presence of the living God. And so the ark of the, of the covenant went with the people of Israel. Again, it was mobile. And so everywhere they went, they brought the presence of God with them. And eventually, when Joshua led the, the nation of Israel into the promised land to conquer it, and after they had subdued the Canaanite nations and Israel had taken possession of their inheritance that God had given them, the Ark of the Covenant ended up in a city called Shiloh, in a region of Israel called Ephraim, because the regions of Israel were divided up by the, by the names of the, the clans, the tribes of Israel. Ephraim was a part of the tribe from Joseph. Joseph had two sons. He had a son named Manasseh, and he had a son named Ephraim. And because Levi one of the sons of, of Jacob, was, no, was not given an inheritance. The priesthood came from Levi. And so, in other words, they were set apart for God to do the religious service and responsibilities of the taking care of the Ark of the, uh, of the Covenant, taking care of the tabernacle of Moses. The priests and the Levites were the ones responsible to do these things. Therefore, they had no inheritance. Their inheritance was Almighty God. And so in place of Levi, the two sons of Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel, those two became. And Joshua was from Ephraim. He was from that line. And so the Ark of the Covenant, my guess, it ended up in Shiloh because it was from Joshua's uh, clan. And so it remained in Ephraim. And that was all through the time of the book of Judges until we come to the book of Samuel. And it's kind of a bridge period when, what's happening here because until uh, uh, Solomon's temple was built, it eventually would replace the Ark of the Covenant, or, or excuse me, it would eventually replace the Tabernacle of Moses. But in that period of time, in between the building of Solomon's temple and the replacement of the tabernacle of Moses, something came to being called the tabernacle of David. You see, it was a transitional period. The tabernacle of David only existed in Israel's history for about 40 years. 
the tabernacle of Moses had moved from Shiloh to a place called Nob. That was a priestly town. And it was, it was then housed in a place called Mount uh, Gibeon. Um, but there was something missing. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're going to talk about it this month. But the Ark of the Covenant was no longer contained in the tabernacle of Moses. A lot of people are clueless or ignorant of that. But there was something that occurred in the history of Israel when the tabernacle of Moses was in Shiloh, that the Ark of the Covenant no longer was within the tabernacle of Moses. But we'll deal with that later. But David built a tent, a tabernacle in the city of Jerusalem. When David became king, he attacked the Jebusite city and took it over and made it the capital of Israel. He called it the city of David. And David eventually pitched a tent there and brought the Ark of the Covenant there. But I don't want to get ahead of myself again. But the, the tabernacle of Moses eventually was replaced by the second of the most significant building, what was called the, the Temple of Solomon. Now, David had wanted to build a permanent house for God in Jerusalem, but God forbid him and said that his son would do so in his place. And so Solomon got the plans from his father, David, because God had revealed again to David, as he had revealed to Moses, he had given him a picture into heaven. Because when Isaiah, the prophet, uh, saw the throne room of God, what we find in the temple and was also in the tabernacle of Moses, this furniture was a picture of what was in heaven. And so we see this, that when Solomon completed the building of the temple, the same thing occurred when they dedicated the temple of Solomon after it had been completed. The same thing happened when they had dedicated the tabernacle of Moses, which was the presence of God filled the temple and whereby the priest or the king could not enter into that place because the presence of God was so strong, so, so thick in that, in that end. But the temple of Solomon, just a little history lesson on that end, even before Solomon uh, 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 ceased to be king, Solomon's heart had been turned away from God as he grew older. He had married many foreign wives, and those foreign wives had turned him towards idolatry, where he had built other sanctuaries and places for the gods of the nations that his wives had represented. And Solomon led Israel back into idolatry. You know, the book of, of Judges tells us that when Israel had entered into the promised land, they became like Canaanites as opposed to the Canaanites seeing the uniqueness of who Israel was supposed to be. See, God wanted his people to be separate. He, he wanted his people to show forth his wisdom to the nations of the world so that they would want to know God. But unfortunately, instead of the people being satisfied knowing who God was and serving God, they wanted to serve the, 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 they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to serve their gods and do the things that that those nations did. And that's that's why the book of Judges is so disturbing. It's so dark because it was really how the, the people of Israel became like Canaanites. Well, 
when Solomon had built the temple and had become renowned to all the nations of the world, especially the wisdom that God had given to Solomon. People came from all over. They brought riches and wealth to the nation of Israel. They were astounded by the wisdom that God had given Solomon. But Solomon's heart was turned away from God and followed the, the practices of his wives. And so eventually, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, the kingdom split. And Israel became two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which had 10 tribes. One of Solomon's ministers, one of the people that had served Solomon, uh, his name was Jeroboam. But Jeroboam was prophesied over by a prophet of God, that God was going to rend or rip away the, the nation from, from Solomon. But he wouldn't entirely forsake the promise that he had given to David. And so he was going to give two tribes to the lineage of David, to the people of Judah and, ben, and, and Benjamin, that the lower kingdom of Israel called Judah would become. And then the northern ten tribes, Rehoboam was to lead and be the king over, and they became known as the nation of Israel. And so in essence, when, Rehob, when, when, when Jeroboam became king, though, in his insecurity, instead of allowing the people of the ten tribes to the north to go and worship God in the temple in Jerusalem, he built two golden calves. Isn't that crazy? When you don't know history, it has a way of repeating itself. That didn't go over in Sinai, and it didn't go over in the northern kingdom of Israel either. But he set up two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And so eventually the northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 BC to Assyria. And eventually, even though the people of Judea, because interesting in the history of Israel that in the 10 tribes in the north and all the kings that they had, and there was 20 that they had, not one of the kings that the northern kingdom of Israel had ever truly served the Lord. None of them feared God. None of them were good kings. They were all went the way of evil. Now, in the lower nation of Judea, they had both good kings and bad kings. In fact, when you count it up, they had 20 kings as well, but they had 12 12 ones that were bad and eight of them that were good, okay? But eventually, in 586 BC, because of their continual uh, turning away from God, breaking the articles of the covenant, not being faithful to God, that the, the lower uh, uh, nation of Judah fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And when they came in, not only did the Babylonians destroy the city of Jerusalem, they absolutely decimated and turned the temple of Solomon into a pile of rubble. It was disheartening. It was absolutely devastational to the people of Israel. But eventually, as the prophets had spoken, the people of Israel were released from their captivity in Babylon and able to go back and reestablish the nation of Israel and to rebuild the temple. But what's interesting when you read the scriptures is to realize that when the people of Israel rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, when it was rebuilt, when it was dedicated, something didn't happen. That it happened when the tabernacle of Moses had been built and dedicated and when the, tabern or when the temple of Solomon had been built and dedicated. When they, this in the second temple, when it was built and dedicated, the presence of God did not fill that 
tabernacle. It's what caused the older people to weep and cry and realize that it was nothing like what they were used to in that end. But it's what began to cause the people to recognize that the prophets had been speaking with regards to this. And so in Israel, there became the messianic hope because there was spoken of a leader that would come that would truly restore the glory to Israel. He would truly fulfill the promises of God. And so that's what the hope of the people began to rest upon. And then all of a sudden, after Malachi's prophecies, because Malachi, when you read the, the, the prophets that came back after the exile and spoke to the people, you have Haggai, you have Zechariah, you have Malachi, you have some of these that came back. They realized that the Jewish people had gone right back to their old ways. They started to desecrate the temple of God. They started to treat God as is without respect. They didn't fear God. And eventually they were just repeating history again. But during, and so after, after Malachi, God went radio silent for 400 years. In other words, for 400 years in the nation of Israel, God went silent. No prophet spoke. Nobody spoke on behalf of God. And during this period in the second temple era is kind of when the what we know is the Jewish Bible was kind of uh, put together. It's in that second temple area that the Jewish scriptures came into to being in the way that we now recognize them to be. But during this period, although their hopes were in a Messiah coming, their expectations of what the, of what the Messiah would be became skewed. What the people started to look for, because they went from one occupation to another occupation. They had been occupied by Babylon, then they were occupied by Persia. Then they were occupied by the Greeks. Um, they had a brief level of freedom for a period under the Maccabees, but then eventually they were occupied again by Assyria, and then they were occupied uh, ultimately by the Romans in coming in. In 63 BC, when Pompey took over the nation of Judah, uh, the Israeli people, um, fascinating point of history, Pompey wanted to know about this God, uh, the God of Israel, and went into the actual Holy of Holies um, and was discouraged because he all he saw was furniture and, and things. He was looking for an image. He was looking for, because all other pagan gods, there was an image, but Jews recognized it was forbidden in the law of Moses to create an image in any form of an idol. But the importance is the presence of God that had been in the tabernacle of Moses and had again been in the temple of Solomon. It wouldn't have been possible under the tabernacle of Moses for Pompey to go in and, and live in that situation. But the help and expectation the people of Israel had been looking for in a Messiah was they wanted a warrior king who would lead them to freedom from their enemies. You see, they didn't even realize who the real enemy was. As New Testament believers, we need to recognize we don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. But they were not looking for, the people of Israel in a Messiah were not looking for a prince of peace who would lead them to the Father. And so that's why when Jesus of Nazareth showed up on the scene, he wasn't anything what the people expected. He shattered their hopes because not only did Jesus not free them from Roman occupation, Jesus had the audacity to actually prophesy 
that the temple in Jerusalem would once again be destroyed. There wouldn't be one stone left upon itself and that the people of Israel would go into exile again. Yet what's fascinating is this. Jesus truly did bring about victory because the real enemy of our soul was Satan. And Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, won the victory that we, do, we most desperately needed. And Jesus made it possible for us to be able to come to God. He, he made it possible that we could be reconciled to God, that we could be redeemed to God by his blood. And through his blood, he again would make us a kingdom of priests unto our God, who were called out of darkness and into the marvelous light. It was what God's original plan was for the people, for Adam and Eve, that the role that Adam and Eve played in, in Eden, it was that they were priests. They were to rule the world that God had created for them to rule as royal priests. That's how they were to do so in the, they were to do so in unity and in conjunction with Almighty God. Because in the book of Genesis, when it said that God created Adam to work the garden, the only other time that that word work is used, it's in the, uh, uh, the Torah when it's relating to the work of the Levites and the priests in the temple. So in other words, Adam and Eve were royal priests. And that's what Jesus reaccomplished for humankind. He provided the opportunity for all human beings, not just Jews. The restoration wasn't promised for just the Jewish nation, but it was for all the peoples of the earth because that was God's promise. That's what God had spoken through Abraham. He said, through you, I will bless all the nations of the world. And so in essence, Jesus came and won that victory. And that's why something significant happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. The very veil in the temple in Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom. That thick four-inch veil that had separated all human beings, except for the high priest, from where the presence of God was to reside, now God was saying, I am not contained any longer in earthly temples. Now my presence is open. My presence is available. And through Jesus, he gave the opportunity that human beings could come into the presence of the living God. Jesus broke down the walls that once separated man from God. That's why in Ephesians 2, it tells us that Jesus broke the wall of perdition down that separated us that we who were with, once without the covenants of promise, that we were once strangers from the, from the commonwealth of Israel, that we were without hope and without God in the world, Jesus brought us to God. And through Jesus, God united all humanity as one, both Jew and Gentile, no longer with their division, no longer with their separations, but now all had the opportunity to be able to come to God. That through Jesus... He made us one. Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth. And so now those lost Gentiles could be reconciled to God. That's the good news. That's the power of the gospel. It is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so... As the inauguration of Jesus' new kingdom had come with the believers, now the disciples that Jesus had turned over the responsibility of his ministry to, 
What's fascinating when you read the book of Acts is that where did the Spirit of the Lord fall? What day did he fall on? He fell on the day of Pentecost. And why was that important? Because when you read the details in Acts chapter 2, who was in the city of Jerusalem on that day? The Bible makes very clear the note of all of these different nations. And when the believers were ushered out from the upper room to communicate this new message of the gospel, this power of what the kingdom of God had come through Christ to reconcile human beings to God, that there were all these different nations that were now hearing the gospel in their own languages. It was the foretaste of what was to come. And so as the church began to, to grow, at first it was predominantly a Jewish it was predominantly a Jewish move. All the, the disciples of Jesus, his inner circle were all Jewish boys. Jesus himself had been Jewish, raised under the law, but he fulfilled the law. And that's why when he arose from the dead, he made it possible for all. That's why he told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Oh, he goes beyond the Jewish community and to the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, this good news is for every creature. That's why Mark's gospel says, go into all the world and preach the gospel because Jesus made it possible for all human beings to be able to come into the presence of God. But eventually the, the controversy grew as Gentiles began to come to Christ. God had raised up the apostle Paul because predominantly the disciples of Jesus were only reaching the Jewish community. So God knew what he needed to do to get his plan done. He appeared to a, to a, 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 a Pharisee that was, you know, a radical Pharisee named Paul and turned Paul from being the number one enemy of the church to becoming the number one promoter of the church. The Apostle Paul's efforts went far above and beyond all of Jesus' other disciples that he had trained personally. The Apostle Paul took the mission of the gospel to the, to the, to the worlds of that day. He took them to the, to the Mediterranean area and planted the ecclesias, these little church communities all over the Roman Empire. Paul's work, but as the Gentiles became Christians, this controversy grew that Acts 15 tells us about because now Paul's testifying to all that God is doing among the Gentiles, but you have the original faction of the church. The Jewish believers were saying, now for them to be true followers of Jesus, they need to follow the law of Moses. They need to be circumcised. They need to eat kosher. They need to follow, but God had already dealt with Peter. God had given Peter a vision and said, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. In other words, Peter, don't be prejudiced against people. I didn't come to make them all Jews. I came to make them children of the living God. In other words, the Jewish nation, God had a purpose for. They were a means to an end. It was through the Jewish people that their separateness from the world around them gave the ability for Jesus to be born into the earth, for one to come that truly could fulfill the law. And now that Jesus, having fulfilled the law, he made it possible for all human beings to be established in a relationship with God, not by law, but by grace. And so that's the power of the gospel. But all of this came to a head. And we know that in Acts 15, there's this temple council that's happening. Uh, they, that they come together, that these new disciples were talking through these responsibilities of what does it mean for the people 
now to be true followers of Christ. You had a section of them that were arguing because it would make sense. I mean, the law of Moses came from God directly. Why would it be replaced? But now, as this is going, Peter is like, hey, listen, God spoke to me. God told me. In fact, we've never as a nation ever been able to truly fulfill these the articles of our covenant. Jesus was the only one who was, who was able to do so. Why would we put a yoke around the Gentiles that we ourselves never were able to accomplish? Paul and Barnabas testified that the grace of God had been flowing tremendously. The Gentiles were coming to Jesus at record numbers. It was invading the Roman Empire. It was, it was absolutely flourishing and growing. And so why would we try to go backwards? And that's why eventually the verdict came from Jesus' half-brother, James, who had become a leader in the church by this time. Fascinating that Jesus, that James didn't be, become a believer. He didn't become a follower of his brother until after the resurrection. You know, James is one of those, those points in history where you say that all the people who claim that this was made up or something, James was never a follower of his brother when he was alive. James didn't become a convert to Christianity until Jesus arose from the dead. I mean, you think about it. What would it take you to convince your brother that you were the son of God. And so in essence, as James became a leader in the church, he's the one that gave the final verdict. And James goes to what's seemingly an obscure passage, a prophecy given by the prophet Amos. And he quotes this in Acts 15 in verse 13 through 18. It says, when they had finished, James spoke up. He said, brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervene to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. What's fascinating in this scripture is that James highlights this idea that the tabernacle of David is what God said through the prophet Amos he would rebuild. Notice he didn't notice what he didn't say. He didn't say I will rebuild the tabernacle of Moses. Notice what he also didn't say. I will rebuild the temple of Solomon. No. God highlights something that's significant the tabernacle of David. You see, the tabernacle of David, and this is why this is important that we're talking about it, because it represents the church age. The church age was a mystery hidden in God. That now, that's why Ephesians 3 says, now under principalities and powers might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That God had spoken, even the Messiah, the gospel, uh, 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 excuse me, the, the prophet Isaiah, had actually spoken these words. Isaiah 16, 5 said, In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David. Speaking of the Messiah here, the prophet Isaiah said, A throne would be established that he would sit upon in the tabernacle of David. Again, not the temple of Solomon, 
and not the tabernacle of Moses, but the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. In other words, Jesus, who's the head of the church, would execute judgment, righteousness, and mercy from the tabernacle of David. It is, in essence, a picture of the church age that now we could be restored to God, that in the church age, God would do something significant. And so what happened, and this is where I want to kind of go to in our discussion further on this point, is that something happened in David's tent that had to do with the very character of David. Something fascinating that we need to understand because David, the Bible highlights, is something significant. God does something in this end that begins with a man named David. And why? Well, Acts 13.22 quotes something that's found in the Old Testament. When God was replacing Saul, when Saul had disobeyed God twice, and the prophet Samuel, who had originally anointed Saul to be the first king over Israel, said that the Lord had rent the kingdom from him. And he sought for a man who was after God's own heart. And that's why Acts 13, 22 says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What I want us to note here is this. The Bible says, speaking here of God, I have found David. David. You see, God found something in David that he's looking for in each and every one of us. And what is God looking for? 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the face of the earth, looking for those to whom he can show his uh, self strong to, those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. What is God looking for? What is God seeking? God was seeking a man after his own heart. He was looking for a worshiper. You see, notice what God didn't say. He didn't say someone who was a man after God's own hand. He said, he's a man after my own heart. We'll be honest. When you talk about the hand of God, it's when we look for God to do things for us. And the overwhelming majority of people are those who seek God for what God can do for them. In other words, we want God to intervene in our life, to heal us from some problem we're going through, to make a breakthrough in some challenge we're having, to restore our families, to provide for our needs or whatever. Most of the time that when people seek God, they're seeking God for what God can do for him. So in other words, they're seeking God's hand. But he said what he was actually looking for, what God found in David is what God values so highly. It was he found a man after his own heart. It was someone who pursued God for who God was. He wanted to know God. He loved God. He wanted to understand God more thoroughly. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a worshiper. That's why Jesus, when he spoke to a woman in Sychar, which is an area of Samaria, now, at the time that Jesus had entered into this area, Samaritans and Jews really had no dealings. There was immense prejudice because Samaritans were actually half-breed Jews. 
when the nation of Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they had exported many of the, the Jews to Assyria and had in, incorporated Assyrians to come into uh, Israel, the northern, the northern section of Israel, and the peoples intermarried. And so the Jewish people, the people from Judea, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ruling class were ruling, said that Samaritans were half-breeds. They were unclean, and therefore they couldn't enter into the presence of God. They were forbidden to come to the temple, and so they were separate. And there was such immense prejudice. There was no dealings of Samaritans and Jews. The Jews avoided the Samaritans, and the Samaritans knew that they were hated by the Jews. And so one day, though, the Bible says in the Gospel of John that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, when the Bible says he needed to go through Samaria, it wasn't the the Jews had a route to get back to Galilee, where Jesus was was you know predominantly from. Nazareth was founding Galilee. Galilee, Jesus' ministry around the Sea of Galilee is where it, it originally flourished, and the majority of his followers were from up in that area. But Jesus had an appointment that day with a woman by a, 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 a well in Sychar, in Samaria. And when he came to the well, he was sitting there. The disciples went to get food. And a woman came at noon. And the reason she came at noon is because she was ashamed. Her life had been so, uh, um, even by our standards in our culture today, I mean, in her culture, it was horrific. But she had been married and divorced five times. And now, instead of being married, she was just living with somebody. And so she came at noon because that's not when women would normally go to get water. That was the hottest part of the day. The women either came in the very beginning of the day at the, the, the dawn or they came at the end of the day at dusk because it was cooler and easier to do those tasks. But this woman came in the heat of the day because she, why? Because she wasn't expecting anybody to be there. And here was Jesus sitting on the well. So going out of her way to avoid him, all of a sudden Jesus awkwardly starts this discussion with her and says, please give me something to drink. And the woman was astounded because she knew he was Jewish. And she asked him the question, why are you talking to me? <laughs> Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. And she himself was a woman. But Jesus said to her, if you knew who it was who was talking to, you would have asked of him. And he would have given you living water. So Jesus starts to deal with this woman. Here is somebody that is ostracized by society. Somebody considered to be not anybody God would, we think, be interested in. But here was God in a bod. Here was Jesus. And he was reaching out to this woman because that's why he was there. And when he revealed to her who he was, because he said to her, she, you know, she tries to avoid the question, because um, she wanted the water that he talked about. She says to him, give me this water. He said, go get your husband. And she doesn't say, the person I'm with is not my husband. But Jesus knows her heart. Jesus knows her circumstances. And Jesus says to her, you have rightly spoken, because she tried to avoid it. She tried to tell him the truth without telling him the whole truth. And you know that the half-truths are actually lies. But so Jesus exposes it and says, listen, Yes, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. And she says, I perceive you are a prophet. And then immediately she goes through this dialogue about worship. She had a hungry heart. 
She wanted to be a worshiper of God, but was unsure how. And Jesus says these words to her. He said, the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So in other words, Jesus reveals to her that what God truly seeks is worshipers. And that is so true that we need to understand that God seeks worshipers. And that's where we're going to pick up in our next discussion. We're going to hit this as a part B type situation. And I have a second one this week because we're going to talk about David and his backstory because it's so important to understand that David was a true worshiper. And when you read the stories of David in the Bible, it is absolutely encouraging if you read it because, you know, we have a way often with people we admire and respect of baptizing them in honey. We attempt to avoid all of the things we're embarrassed or ashamed of and only highlight the good. But that's what I so much love about the Bible. The Bible is just so real. And God tells us the good as well as the bad. The Bible tells us the things that we can be both proud of and the things that we are often trying to cover up, the things that we're ashamed of. But God reveals to us something true. And when it comes to the life of David, David was a man, when we see in Scripture, he was brilliant, he was brave, but yet at the same time, he was deeply flawed. David had problems. And why that's good news to you and me is because he's just like us. David, God said, was a man after his own heart because God doesn't look at what other people look for. We live in a culture where everybody judges from without, but God said he looks within. And so that's where we're going to pick up this story next time. We're going to talk more about this in part B of this in talking about the restoration of the tabernacle of David. I hope you tune in and, 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 and stay along with us. I'm really excited about this. Hit you back next time. <music>